0: Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac
1: Arrest. Hello everybody, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is my medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Hi Casey. And today we're going to hit a little back to the basics on COPD. had a lot of questions from medics in the hallway and in the field about COPD, sort of you know diagnosis, uh, differentiating COPD. So we thought we'd really start today at the um, at the ground level and work our way up. This is a big topic, uh, COPD is. So we're going to split this into two parts, and today we're going to start with basically what is COPD, and I think with any acronym. It's important to know what the letters stand for because oftentimes they give you clues. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So it's not something that you didn't have yesterday that you have today. It's chronic, develops over time. It involves obstructed obstructed airways in the lungs, right? So in the textbook, there are two classic classes of COPD. In reality, we know that this is very much a gray zone and not black and white, but for learning's sake, Classically, these are separated into emphysema patients and chronic bronchitis patients. The emphysema patients, often labeled, I know when I was in medical school, I remember the pictures in the, in the, uh, in the textbooks of emphysema patients being pink puffers and chronic bronchitis patients being blue bloaters. Reason being is that emphysema patients are often uh, polycythemic, so they get uh, increased red cells in response to chronic hypoxemia, so they, they're, they're pink. Uh, puffers from the obstructive lung disease. Chronic bronchitis patients, on the other hand, blue bloaters, oftentimes uh, overweight and uh, cyanotic. So, blue bloaters, pink puffers. If there's a whole yeah. lot of clinical you uh, I like there, it but though again.
0: because I still remember my medical school textbook pictures of these two guys, right? There are always two guys there and they come in two flavors, right? So I think that's a great place to start, Casey, when we're talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is kind of the two distinct flavors and understanding that the, the, the clinical syndromes kind of meld together in this subset of patients to kind of just go under the COPD umbrella. So when we talk about emphysema or the pink puffers, distinctly we're talking about small airway destruction, right? Bullet formation these tend to be thinner or older patients and the chronic bronchitis or the blue bloaters these are a diagnosis of chronic daily cough for three months three months continuously for over two years right or in a two-year period they tend to have an elevated hemoglobin but they do they do look at time cyanotic they get uh, breathless they have chronic breathlessness they have chronic chronic cough wheezing and ronchi on their on their clinical exam and and when i think about these and kind of the the patient that fits there in the middle I, i ask myself you know what's the pathophys you know what's what's causing all this and the number one is the result of smoking right so we were talking before the podcast came on hopefully the cigarette companies are not coming after us but it is the most common the most probably one of the most damaging things you can do for your health, right, is is cigarette smoking. Very, very addictive, and and the most common cause of, of this disease.
1: Yeah, there are other there are other much less common reasons. Uh, you know, learn down in the in the zebras, the alpha one antitrypsins of the world that you are, to say that, that. that are not clinically relevant. <laughs> I think probably number one is cigarette smoking for us, and number two is secondary smoke exposure. Or other and number you know, three, four, and five. Where's Alpha One Antitrypsin uh, Doctor? 112 <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, Thanks.
0: And so when you talk about like like how this destruction starts, it's uh, it's really cool when I, when I think about because you think about like how the cells work and how just regular stuff is cleared out of the the conducting airways in your lungs and it's cleared by these little cilia that are constantly like sweeping the chimney, right? Little so fuzzy hairs, yep. right? They're damaged. There's no clearance. Hence, you have mucus production. You have this chronic productive cough, which equals obstruction, right? You yeah. have alveolar damage, which is the distal, distal uh, airways, with bulla and chronic inflammation gives us obstruction, right? This is not a problem getting air in. It's a problem getting the air out. You know, most combination, most patients are a little bit of both, aren't they? I mean, they're n- neither one flavor nor the other. They're a combination of both. Uh, and the differences sometimes are not that terribly important in the emergency setting. The more important thing to remember, I think, from the pathophys is this is an obstructive disease, Right. You have wheezing, dyspnea, chronic cough, and also with the obstruction, what do we have, right? We have CO2 retention, which if it gets bad, can result in somnolence, altered mental status, and hypercapnic respiratory failure.
1: So, and just to back up to one of the things we've said a couple times, and just to make sure we're we're clear on the definition um, and staying true to the basics, We'll put some X-ray links, some image links in the show notes, so listeners can go look and listen to some of the things that we discussed today. But bulla is a word that you know I, don't, I didn't know until I went through through medical school, and basically a bulla is just a big space, basically a yeah. big a big uh, you know you think about healthy airways, and you have all the alveoli that fill with, fill with oxygen. Oxygen exchange happens across the capillary membrane. CO2 is dropped off and exhaled. And if you chronically inhale smoke, you're going to damage those alveoli to the point that they die. And as they die, that sac that used to have a capillary bed and uh, cell membrane and you know cell structure right. is gone, you just have space. So when you think about that, so it's just a think, big
0: space. think about all that loss of potential area, surface area for gas exchange, right? That's how this happens, right? It's a one cell layer thick process where we diffuse oxygen across one way and waste products or CO2 off the other way. And as this surface area is destroyed, right, the, the physiology of this in the patient gets worse and worse and worse. So this is a, a progressive worsening disease over time. Can you talk a little bit, Casey, about maybe what we will see in our clinical examination? What these patients look like when you examine
1: them? So you led into it perfectly. If you go right back to where you left off with obstruction leads to wheezing, leads to dyspnea, leads to cough obstruction leads to increased CO2 retention, ultra mental status, CO2 narcosis, that obstruction also leads to your exam findings. And really, in these folks, the most common exam finding and the thing that we're gonna look for to really key us in is gonna be wheezing. Now, before we get into the specifics of the whee- wheezing that we hear in COPD, I think it's a good spot for us to just review some, some basics on lung sounds. And we're gonna try our hand at inserting some some audio clips here, so, so bear with me. Uh, when we talk about normal lung sounds, that's our normal uh, conduction of air uh, across our chest wall that we listen with our stethoscope. So here we go with the normal breath sound oftentimes when we talk about breath sounds uh, I heard people say the term adventitious breath sounds for probably three years of medical school before I knew what adventitious even meant adventition just just means an added or abnormal breath sound wheezing being one of those and the key one here when we're listening to COPD patients best way to describe wheezing is continuous, musical, often worst on expiration, and it's from narrowed small airways. Makes sense in COPD because those airways are narrowed due to the obstruction. Classically, COPD wheezing is high-pitched, and the lower-pitched sound from obstruction is ronchi. So we're going to do wheezes, and then ronchi back-to-back, So y'all can hear the uh, difference. Again, high-pitched obstruction, inflammation, asthma, COPD, that's wheezing. Low rumbling or snoring, that's classically heard with pneumonia. And that's Ronchi. And here we go. Number one, wheezing. And number two, Ronchi. not applicable to our uh, COPD discussion today, but we often talk about rales and crackles. Uh, definition of rales is non-continuous, non-musical sound, often described as rubbing hair together or rubbing Velcro together. And this is from fluid or inflammation in the small airways. So here we'll go with some rales, some crackles for y'all. So we've listened to normal breath sounds, we listen to wheezes, ronchi, rouse, and crackles, and we'll finish up with strider, which is not a lower airway sound. Wheezes, ronchi, rouse, and crackles all originate from the lower airways. Uh, strider originates from upper airway or vocal cord edema, most commonly heard in children with croup, worse on inspiration as opposed to wheezing, which is worse on expiration. So here we go with strider, and that'll finish up our airway sound review so we've talked about the pathophysiology of copd we talked about uh, what we look for on exam again classically we're going to hear wheezes in copd now oftentimes when the obstruction is very 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 severe what do we hear nothing nothing and that's the that's the paradoxical i treated them and they sound worse it's not that they sound worse it's just you treated them, and now they sound at all. Because before you treated them, they were so obstructed,
0: you heard zilch. Yes, you did not have your stethoscope on backwards, or the bell wasn't turned the wrong way. You're just not hearing anything. I do both of those fairly I do, often. I do those too. I check myself. But, check yourself, but
1: that's sort of the classic med school question mm-hmm. is, is you treat the patient uh, for COPD or for asthma, you go listen, and they sound worse. What's going on? What's going on is they're actually getting better because they're moving air. Now, can you hear... Ronchi. Can you hear rouse and crackles in COPD patients? Absolutely you can. But again, classically, you're going to hear those continuous high-pitched wheezes that that we think of with COPD. So we talked about why it happens. We talked about what we hear. How do we treat them?
0: You know, the mainstay of this is I, I will say one, two, and three, right? Beta agonists, beta agonists, and more beta agonists, right? We're going to go over all these, but beta agonists, anticholinergics, steroids, magnesium in the sicker patients, and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. We talk about the beta agonists. Let's start with albuterol, right? It's a beta-2 uh, agonist. So there's receptors in the lung. It's a bronchodilator. Most commonly is given in this country by nebulization. Uh, the dose is 2.5 to 5 milligrams for the initial dose and repeat as needed. And it depends on the severity. Sometimes I'll take 5, 10 milligrams of this and just go continuously over 30 minutes and reassessing the sick patient. So mainstay, albuterol, beta, beta agonist uh, for smooth muscle bronchodilation.
1: Next would be... Anticholinergic's next on our list. Just to talk a little bit, add on to Dr. Dixon's uh, beta agonist spiel there. Uh, some of the side effects of, of beta agonists we're gonna see. This is gonna be tachycardia, uh, tremor, anxiety. Again, we accept those side effects, in the, in the sicker COPD patients, you know, in exchange for the bronchodilation. Dr. Dixon mentioned beta agonists being nebulized in this country. We can also give these by meter dose inhaler. We can also give uh, albuterol IV. It's given IV in, in many parts of the world today. But from our standpoint here at MCHD, you know, there is some, some data out there that suggests that meter dose inhaler is as effective as nebulized albuterol I, when I'm taking care of these patients, I want every bit of their being directed at breathing and not at taking a meter dose inhaler or doing any other task, talking, walking. I want them doing nothing but breathing in medication to open their airways. So that's beta-2 agonist. Moving on to anticholinergics. Drug there is ipratropium, generic uh, trade name Atrovent. Looking at the literature for anticholinergics and COPD, it's really thin. There's not very much at all. The gold standard, as Dr. Dixon said, is beta-2 agonist, beta-2 agonist, and beta-2 agonist. And that's what everything is compared against. There's some weak data that suggests adding anticholinergics with beta agonists get us a little bit of help. But in all honesty, if somebody out there wants to do that study, it's really not been done very well. The thought is, is that it also aids in smooth muscle relaxation. Again, given uh, via nebulization, dose is 0.5 milligrams. Uh, I typically treat folks in the moderate to severe range with three of those. Again, less, less data, but recommended by all the major societies and critical care folks and chest journal and all those, all those people that are way smarter than we are. Everybody but, in the pulmonary, know. man, they, in the pulmonary, no. And that's, that's who we, that's who we, uh, defer to. So that's anticholinergics. So you've given them an albuterol and nebulize two or three. If they're sick, you've given them two or three atrovent if they're sick, what do you add next?
0: You know, uh, in most services, in our, at MCHD, we add steroids. There's options out there. We use solumedrol, but there's other options out there. You can use IV or P-O-dexamethasone or just P-O-prednisone. Uh, this is an anti-inflammatory. Understand, though, that there's, the onset of action is delayed. This is not a you give the steroid and immediately they're well. You're giving the steroid to start treating the patient to make my job easier so I can get the patient better sooner, out of the hospital sooner, decreased length of hospital stay,
1: things like this. This is not a magical drug that just turns people around, though. If we uh, took steroids off the trucks, you would see during your transport here in MCHD, no zero, difference. Zero difference. Let's be clear yeah. on that. Now, would I see a difference at hour two? Data suggests so, which is why we right. give it. But right,
0: less admissions overall. Less to people to backs. get early steroids. Yeah. Less bounce backs. Less length to stay in hospitalization. But there is a downside to them. So let's talk about the downside. Right, you, you see some increased fluid retention, increased blood pressure, maybe some anxiousness, sleep. It can exacerbate uh, psychiatric illness. So you have, to, you have to be careful with these medications. Any Remember, any medication we give, right, there's an upside to it, but there's also a downside to it. And those have to be weighed risk-benefit in every patient. So steroids, another, if we're kind of thinking about the sicker patients, right, we start looking at the kitchen sink to throw in, and the next one I would think of would be magnesium. It's thought to help as a, a, a bronchodilator, a smooth muscle uh, uh, relaxant, It's a little bit of controversy on on its efficacy. The dose we use here is one to two grams IV, most common. Um, It's most often reserved. I see it clinically used in sick patients that are, you've already given maximum albuterol to, you've already given steroids, and they're just not getting better. What's the side effects? Respiratory depression, hyporeflexia. But these are in much much larger doses. Me personally, I have I have given grams and grams of magnesium. I've never had the respiratory depression side effect from it. Yeah, the
1: OBs laugh at us. Uh, they give yeah they give four six grams, eight right? grams yeah. um, and just to to run back one to two grams is the most commonly used doses out there for folks listening from other services. Looking at our MCHD protocol, our dose is two grams. Two grams. Two grams. Yes. Um and. Again, most, most of the time reserved for the sicker patients. Uh, I feel like, from the standpoint, if you call EMS for your wheezing and I come get you and I hear that you are wheezing and indeed think it's COPD or asthma for that matter, I'm going to give you beta 2 agonist, anticholinergics, and steroids every time, uh, assuming there's not a, a gigantic contraindication there, which there are not many. Uh, when we move to the next step, the magnesium and the non invasive, that's the step up from that mild to moderate. Severity. Yeah, those
0: to me, those fish swim in the same pond, right? The first three everybody gets if they're sick enough to, to activate the 911 system and have us show up at their door at three o'clock in the morning, they're going to get those first three from me. The second two, the magnesium, and as we progress down the respiratory failure pathway into non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, those two kind of are in the same pond with me. If I look at a patient, they're super sick, impending, they have altered mental status changes, they look sleepy, you feel like they're retaining and they need some they need some help they're wearing out my go to
1: is magnesium and non invasive positive pressure ventilation so just to just to divert a second what how do we know that danger zone is coming so what what are the things that you look for on exam to tell us that we've progressed from okay we've got a we got a 70 year old past smoker looks like the blue bloater or the pink puffer in the in the anatomy uh, text and you hear some wheezing so you're going to do Albuterol three, Atrovent three on the way. You're going to do some steroids. What what are some things that you look yeah. for that's going to kick you over to magnesium and non-invasive?
0: Yeah, their clinical examination. Uh, you know, the, are they tripoding, pursed lip breathing, and and really my go-to is my that tips me is when they start getting sleepy, when they start getting hypercapnic. They start developing altered mental status. It's not an a, a acute change. It's kind of a gradual change in these patients. And they'll they'll arouse and they'll answer some questions and they'll get kind of somnolent. Those are the, those are those are are warning signs of impending respiratory failure there. And those are where I go to non invasive early.
1: If we want to confirm that, how can we confirm that on our trucks here at MCHD? What do we have? right at our fingertips. Let's say that you weren't 100% sure you had CO2 narcosis. What can we hook up to the patient and title CO2, right?
0: Yeah, we got those nasal prongs and we put it on every one of these patients.
1: And remember that these patients are often hypercapnic at baseline. So they're oftentimes not really, they're oftentimes not 35 or 40, right? They're normally walking around 50 to 55. Correct. But you put them on and you see 75 80 and they're slumping over and looking really sleepy. That's when we need to start to move towards that kitchen sink. And then the final the final piece of that kitchen sink treatment is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Here at MCHD, we're, we're lucky enough to be able to use uh, Bi- BiPAP or biphasic positive pressure. Now, a lot of folks out there may have portable CPAP, which is also acceptable. Bottom line is non-invasive saves lives in COPD exacerbations. This is about as solid data as you can get. Um, looking at Cochrane Review, the you know the gold standard of, of meta-analyses, the number needed to treat to prevent intubation in COPD by using non-invasive is in the three to four patient range. That's just huge. Right, and it's, it's just, a huge intervention. So it's like in, a slam dunk. So, in the,
0: in the sicker patients, I don't delay that at all. If I have any doubt, I put it on them, and you could run inline nebs. Don't forget to, to stick with your beta agonist, right? You can run these inline nebs. Very, very important to, to use the beta agonist while you're on the non-invasive as well.
1: And finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up oxygen and, you know, oxygen therapy in COPD patients. We've talked about that at length on the podcast in a prior episode of talking about hyperoxygenation. Bottom line in these patients is the data is pretty darn clear that there is no need to bump these patients up to 100%. It makes us feel good when we see that on the monitor, but in the end, we're going to cause harm when we do that. So we want to shoot for you know, 90, 92% is is entirely acceptable. Um, Our kind of golden number here at MCHD is 94, just because that is the number that we use across procedures for our delayed sequence intubation. And And so we, I don't think there's any need to pump a COPD or up past 94%. And I think the literature is suggesting more and more each day that that's not only not helpful, it's harmful.
0: I would agree with that completely. I would add a caveat though. I've heard many times since I delivered patients as a, as a paramedic and and signed over patients to an ED doc, right, uh, of this, uh, this hypoxic drive, this, this, uh, this thought out there that if we if we give too much oxygen and and it can have some untoward effects with that i would say don't deprive the air hungry the sick patient oxygen right they're not going to die of their hypercapnia they're dying of their hypoxemia so i completely agree we should be goal directed and we shouldn't just push the number up to 100 because we like it but understand uh for the listeners out there that it's, it's in the sick patient, we want to get it above 90, 92%. And they're going to be, they're going to be fine there, but don't deprive people of oxygen who are air hungry, who look sick, right? Uh, Because of this hypoxic drive boogeyman out there that may potentially hurt them down the line.
1: Yeah. And that's, and whether or not that, that hypoxic boogeyman, again, go back for more discussion in the, in the hyperoxemia uh, podcast, but that boogeyman probably doesn't realistically exist. Dr. Dixon's point is extremely valid. If the patient has stats of 75%, they're dying of, of hypoxemia. They need, they need oxygen. So don't deprive that patient of oxygen. Get them, you know, tuned up, get their beta agonists going, get the mask scrapped on their face, get their mag going, get their steroids in. And just remember that you can always turn the oxygen down. And we want to leave these people, once we get them settled, in that 90 to 94% range. All right. That's a good spot to take us home and wrap us up. Uh, COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, classically two patients, the pink puffer, the emphysema patient, and the blue bloater, the chronic bronchitis patient, know that these exist in in a continuum or a spectrum. Uh, They're going to present with shortness of breath. They're going to have chronic disease state that exacerbates. Uh, How are we going to recognize them? We're going to recognize wheezing on exam, the danger zone that Dr. Dixon talks about, purse lips, tripodting, altered mental status, that's gonna take us from our moderate range into our severe range. Most of these folks that call 911 for COPD are gonna get NEBS, beta agonist, anticholinergics. They're gonna get steroids, and again, uh, whatever flavor your service uses. We're Solumedrol users here, but there are many options. Those are gonna be first line, and if we see those danger zone exam findings, we see that confusion, somnolence, tripoding, purse lips, we're going to push on through into, uh, into magnesium, 2 grams here at MCHD IV, and BiPAP here at MCHD. Use BiPAP early. Use it often. It decreases intubation. It decreases mortality. Uh, so that's that's about wraps it up for COPD Part 1. Be sure to catch the next installment uh, coming soon. If you have questions or comments, send us an email, and we'll be back.